0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Congregation, let us now turn in our Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. If you weren't here this morning, we began a sermon dealing with the battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The first part of the sermon dealt with the sacrifice that the prophets of Baal made. This afternoon we'll study the second part of that text, verses 30 to 40, dealing with the sacrifice to the Lord. And so we'll read once again verses 20 to 40 of 1 Kings 18. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long? Will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bowls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call in the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. "'O Baal, answer us!' they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. "'Shout louder!' he said. "'Surely he is a god. "'Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling.' Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. In our text this afternoon, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. The wood, the stones, and the soil. And also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we saw the first part of the showdown on Mount Carmel. The scenario began by Elijah asking a very pointed question. His question was, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. The response of the people to this important question was nothing but silence. Their silence was their accuser. God had been faithful to the covenant people. He had been a faithful husband. And all throughout history they complained and they turned from God. Only for God once again to orchestrate events, to turn His people back to Him in repentance. Even through the narrative of the kings, we see times of reformation and times of backsliding. Times of reformation and then backsliding again. However, God had not given up on them. Though He sent a famine on the land, though the famine was severe, he did so as a covenantal act. He was dealing always covenantally with His people. God was punishing the people for their rebellion. This was brought on by the wicked king Ahab, who, though called to be a shepherd, did more to spiritually scatter the children of Israel than any other king who had come before him. This morning we saw the sacrifice to Baal, where the prophets called out. They danced around the altar. They cut themselves while Elijah mocked them. What was Baal's response? Nothing. For he has a mouth, but he cannot talk. He has ears, but he cannot hear. He has eyes, but he can't see. He is an idol. Of course, there would be no response. Now it's time for the lone servant of the Lord to perform his half of the contest to to determine Who is God in Israel? Baal, on whose mountain they stand, or Yahweh, in whose world they live? Our theme this afternoon is, Our Lord, through His servant Elijah, defeats Baal and his prophets on Mount Carmel. Our Lord, through His servant Elijah, defeats Baal and his prophets on Mount Carmel. Four points. First, we'll see Elijah's sacrifice. Second, God's answer Third, Israel's response. And then fourth, a capital result. First, Elijah's sacrifice. In verse 30, Elijah called the people to come near unto him. They had to come unto him because it was important for them to see. It was important for them to see exactly what Yahweh was going to do in their midst. So Elijah, the special office bearer, calls them around to gather around. So all the people are gathered there. Likely in some natural amphitheater type setting. And Elijah right away gets to work repairing the altar of the Lord. Notice what verse 30 says. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord which was in ruins. Why was the altar of the Lord in ruins? Remember this morning we saw that this was a place where Yahweh was once worshipped. Elijah wasn't making a new altar. He set his hand to repair the altar that had previously been there. Some translations say that he repaired the altar which had been torn down. Mount Carmel was at one time devoted to the Lord. It was his land. It was the land of his people. Through the process of idolatry, through rebellion, the altar of the Lord had been torn down. So Elijah takes 12 stones according to the sons of Jacob. Remember where we are in covenant history here. This is the time of the divided monarchy. There are two nations. Israel in the north has ten tribes. Judah in the south has two tribes. Elijah doesn't. is a prophet in the north during the days of Ahab. He doesn't take the ten stones representing the ten tribes of Israel. He takes twelve to represent the north and the south. This is a very important thing. This is very covenantal as well. As you know, there are 50 states in the United States. And throughout the last 235 years, more states have been added to the Union. And therefore, as states are added to the Union, the flag expands. There are 50 stars on the American flag representing the 50 states. But something horrible happened. A civil war happened. The North versus the South The South wanted to leave the Union. And the North, the North and her President, Abraham Lincoln, said, you may not. And so a war started. But the South already declared that they had left. And so as a new nation, the Southern Confederate States wanted to come up with their own flag. So they came up with their own flag. The problem was that the new flag was the same as the old flag. It just had a couple, a few less stars. Flags were important, especially in battle. In those days, you follow your flag. If your flag is retreating, you retreat. If your flag is going forward, you go forward. It was confusing. Two opposing sides with almost the same exact flag. With Elijah choosing 12 12 stones, this is an irony of the divided kingdom. They ought not to be divided. There ought not to be a north and a south. There ought not to be two kings The division was certainly not pleasing for God, for God had made a covenant with Israel. And with Israel, his twelve sons. The twelve stones symbolized a unified covenant people, a shame to the northern tribes. Once Elijah made the altar, which was made in the name of the Lord, he dug a trench around the altar. Elijah laid the wood on the altar. He cut up the sacrifice, the bowl into pieces. He laid that on the wood. Seems pretty straightforward. Very similar to what the prophets of Baal did. However, what Elijah does next is very startling. Look at verse 33 if if you have your Bibles open. Halfway through he says, Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Not just once. Verse 34, Do it again. He said and they did it again. Do it a third time. He ordered And they did it the third time. Now, you don't have to be an expert camper to know exactly what the Israelites knew. Wet stuff doesn't burn. Elijah didn't just soak the meat. He soaked the meat, the wood, the stones. He filled the trench with water. These are four large jars, jugs of water. poured all over the sacrifice in a day. When there's a drought in the land. Picture this for a moment. It's impossible for this to burn. But that's the point. That's the exact point. A very vivid picture of what is going to take place. It is impossible. With man. If all the friction from all the prophets of Baal dancing on his altar couldn't start a fire with with dry wood... What do you think four jugs of water poured over three times on wood and sacrifice are going to do? Just wait and see. And you will see the power of the Lord. This is the implicit message in this episode. You just wait and see. It's anticipating a great event that's going to take place. At this point, Elijah calls upon the name of the Lord. Look at verse 36 the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. There's much that could be said about this prayer. It's an extremely covenantal prayer. Calling to mind, as we oftentimes do in prayer, God's dealings confidentially in history. But the thing about this prayer in this context is that Elijah doesn't get up and jump around. He doesn't dance around. He doesn't jump on the altar. He certainly doesn't cut himself. But with conviction, he calls upon the creator of the heavens and the earth. And God answers him. Which is what we see secondly, God's answer. Elijah just cried out to the Lord publicly, In front of all who were watching. Elijah called to mind the covenant. Reminding all these people what God had done. Who God was. Declaring that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Elijah also asked God to answer. So that these covenant people will know. So that they'll remember. He is God. Not Baal. Not Asherah not some other made-up God. Jehovah, Yahweh Almighty, is God. And that He's God, and He's powerful, and it's He that will be turning their hearts back to Him. That through God's calling, He also produces the means of bringing their hearts back to Him. And God answered. Verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. Burned. Scorched. Gone. God scorched the sacrifice. Elijah prepared the sacrifice with water to show that when God answers, it will indeed be a miracle of great proportions. And this is what happened. Fire fell down from heaven and consumed it all. God heard the prayer of his servant Elijah and answered with power. Yahweh stomped on the impotent Baal. His unburned, dry sacrifice over there, with the rotting flesh of a bull, is antithetical to the burning, scorched sacrifice of the Lord. In this, in this event, God's answering his prayer through Elijah's prayer through sending fire down from heaven, scorching the sacrifice. We can see four great differences between Yahweh and Baal. Dale Ralph Davis points this out as well. The first is that Yahweh is the God with whom geography is no hindrance. Geography is no hindrance. Remember where they are. They're on Mount Carmel. We already mentioned that Baal has home field advantage here. The earlier altar to Yahweh, they had been torn down. It's in ruins. It's in rubble. Mount Carmel, jutting all the way out to the Mediterranean, was the center of Baal worship. The victory of the Lord magnifies the Lord's power and shows Baal's weakness. Even on Mount Carmel, devoted to the worship of Baal, Yahweh shows the impotent Baal. Second, Yahweh is the God in which numbers are no hindrance. We saw it this morning briefly. 450 to 1. 450 prophets of Baal to the one single lone representative of Yahweh. Yahweh was not as popular as he had been in Israel. Years of rebellion, idolatry, forgetting the law had plunged Israel into a spiritual wasteland. But this is no effect of the power of the Lord. Davis says Yahweh's power has never depended on how many cheerleaders he has. The power of the Lord is no account to massive numbers of people. Yahweh reigns, whether he has one person or whether he has millions. Third, Yahweh is the God for whom excessive excessive activity is no inducement. The prophets of Baal were full of antics, full of religious fervor. Elijah was not. It's not that Elijah was not earnest. He was. It's just the fact that Elijah didn't have to be frantic. Elijah prays in verses 36 and 37, and then verse 38, fire falls down from heaven. Dale Rolf Davis says of this, don't think Elijah was casual while the prophets of Baal were intense. Elijah was intense and earnest, but he knew Yahweh's nature. He didn't have to badger, coerce, manipulate, didn't need to blabber on and bleed half the day to secure a hearing. A scorched smoking spot on the ground testifies to that. Yahweh is the God for whom excessive activity is no inducement. Fourth, the fourth great difference between Yahweh and Baal is that Yahweh is the God in which seeming hindrances are nothing in His sight. Think of all the water that Elijah poured on the altar. Now, what is it that we read in our text? The fire licked up the water from the trench. Have you ever seen fire lick up liquid? Only if you've seen gasoline burn. You start a campfire, you pour some gasoline on there. should start it the old-fashioned way, but many people use gasoline. Pour gasoline on there, you're supposed to let it soak into the wood. If you don't and you light it, you will see that the fire will lick the gasoline off of the wood. As we read our text, it's almost as if Elijah's using gasoline here. He's not. This is water. Plain old water magnifies the power of God. God is powerful. There is no obstacle in the way of the absolute sovereignty of God. Those are the four differences. But I want to return back to one briefly. The third difference. The third difference is an extremely important point said there that Yahweh is the God for whom excessive activity is no inducement. Certainly, we are not like the prophets of Baal, right? Nobody here is like the prophets of Baal. I don't see any prophets of Baal here. We are much more refined. Are we not? If you think about all the goofy things they try to do to get a reaction from Baal, don't we oftentimes operate under the same principle? The principle is, if we do this, then God will respond by giving us this. If we do this, then God will do this. Or if we do more of this, even if it is a wholesome and pious activity. The church today is a church full of programs. Programs are important. Programs are good. We have programs for all age groups. We have volunteers. We have helpers etc. Some churches sell them church themselves as a church that has a program for all people. Look at our list of programs. Why? Isn't it often with the mentality of if we do this, then God will do that? Why do you volunteer for anything? What do you get out of it? Why do you serve God? Is it strictly out of gratitude? Or is it because God will respond by giving you what your heart desires? Isn't this exactly what the prophets of Baal are doing? Yahweh is not a God where excessive activity will induce him to give us anything. Even personal activities. If you just read the Bible more. If you just pray more. If you would just be more faithful in worship attendance. You might think all of those things are good. yes. Just like programs are good. Just like any number of these things are good. The question is why? Why do you pray? Why should you read your Bible more? Why should you attend worship faithfully? All good activities. But don't we oftentimes operate with the same mindset as the prophets of Baal who danced on the altar? However, Almighty God does not need to be coaxed or induced to hear us. He knows what we need even before we ask it. Isn't this what Jesus told us? Does it surprise you that the prayer that Jesus taught His disciples, the Lord's Prayer, do you know how long that takes to pray? 20 to 30 seconds. Don't get me wrong. Different types and lengths of prayers have their place. But we often operate with the mentality, the longer prayer, the better. Why? Yahweh did not need a prophet who stood up on the altar and danced around, not only looking, but also acting like a fool. He wanted a prophet whose heart was completely devoted to Him. He wanted a prophet whose heart was completely devoted to Him. Our God is sovereign. We can thank God that we can respond with these things, but they must always be that. A response of gratitude. Third, Israel's response. God performed a mighty work on top of Mount Carmel. How did the idolatrous idolatrous Israelites respond? They repented. They repented. Look back at our text, verse 39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God. Before the sacrifices were given, Elijah placed a probing question before them. How long will you falter between two opinions? What was their answer then? The Lord, He is God. They were silent. They didn't say anything. Formally, they believed in Yahweh, but functionally, they were Baalists. Yahweh had little to no bearing on their lives. The land was in drought. The people were in the midst of great difficulty. They wanted rain, but as we mentioned earlier, this wasn't their biggest problem. Their biggest problem was their unfaithfulness to Yahweh. They had to recommit themselves to their marriage vow of the covenant between them and the Lord. They had broken the marriage covenant. When Elijah asked them the question in the beginning, the response was nothing. He says, choose who is God and follow Him. By declaring now in verse 39 that Yahweh is God, they are committing themselves to follow Him. You can see their humility and the fact that they bent their faces all the way down to the ground. This doesn't mean that while they were sitting in their chair with their legs folded, they put their head down a little bit They bowed their face to the ground. Not in a place with nice floor, nice carpet. They're outside on top of a mountain and they put their face in the dirt. Showing their humility before Yahweh, the one who just scorched the sacrifice. God has done what Elijah prayed God would do in verse 37. He turned their hearts back to the Lord once again. This was the work of Yahweh. And finally... We see the capital result. Our text ends in verse 40 in quite a startling way. We read there, Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Capital punishment was the penalty for all idolatrous false false prophets who served Baal. They were killed. 450 of them. The brooks, or rather the banks of the brook Kishon were bloodied that day. But before we judge Elijah too harshly here, realize that this is the time of a full theocracy. There was no separation between church and state like there is today. If someone is excommunicated from the congregation, we don't hang them or burn them at the stake. There's no execution of heretics but in those days, there was. There, in those days, there had to be. God commanded it. Deuteronomy 13 pronounced the death penalty on those who had tried to woo Israel to worship another god. That's exactly what they were doing. They were wooing Israel to worship another god. Better question is, should Ahab also have been brought down there to be slaughtered? Yes. Nevertheless, the prophets of Baal were certainly guilty of committing this wooing Israel to serve another God. This is very graphic. It's very easy to read in black and white on our page. But think of it splattered with blood. 450 dead that day. The reason why so many Christians today don't get verse 40 are many of the other things in the Old Testament. And they view the Old Testament God as a God of wrath. Of God of judgment, a God of war. The reason why so many today don't get this is because they have too weak of a view of God. They've made Him to be some impotent creation of our modern society. He's the Santa Claus around Christmas time. The power of God is so condemning. We could be tempted to think that since He is so loving to His people and so gracious and so good, that that's all there is to God. At the same time, God is a consuming fire. Not just of the sacrifice on Mount Carmel, but of sinners. The wicked. And He cast them into everlasting perdition. The death penalty for the prophets of Baal, who were leading Israel, was from the law of God. He will be their ultimate punishment. If we understand, brothers and sisters, the true nature of sin... As being nothing less than rebellion against God, then verse 40 makes complete and perfect sense. We need to take sin seriously. The great judgment of the prophets of Baal is a foreshadow of the final judgment when Jesus Christ returns. Congregation, where will you be on that day? mentioned it this morning. what nationality do you think these prophets of Baal were? They were Israelites, circumcised on the eighth day, brought up in seemingly covenantal homes, whether the covenant had been broken by their parents' unbelief? don't know. These were Israelites, covenant breakers, children of the covenant who broke God's covenant. This is Ahab has and is doing. And these prophets are delivered into the hands of an angry God. Did they really think that they could do whatever they want? And God just wouldn't care? Had He been silent so long that they could shake their fist in the face of God without Him striking them down? Enough is enough. To the brook Kishon with them that's just death. That's not, nothing compared to eternal death. This is a picture of the eternal judgment, the final judgment. On that day, believers will be vindicated. Our catechism speaks about the Lord's enemies and mine. So we bow down to the ground and we confess our faith. God is the judge. Not us. From that we can see that though they fell into horrible sins and idolatry, for the nation of Israel, 450 prophets are dead. It's over for them. But think about all the, all the rest of the Israelites. Who do you think it was that said in verse 39, "The Lord He is God. The Lord He is God." It's the people of Israel, children of the covenant. Worshippers of Baal who are turning to God in faith and repentance. Do you think people didn't think like Elijah? It had gone too far. There's no hope for these people. Think of Jonah going to Nineveh. Not that place. Those people have no hope. They're wicked and perverse. There was hope. They repented. Remember that fact. Remember that as you grieve over covenant breakers in your own families. Certainly, certainly you have them. Most of us do. If you're older and as children, this is what you pray about. And you likely pray about and for them every single day. It's the greatest burden on your heart. Your children or your parents or your siblings or whoever it might be, don't believe. Apply that also to your neighbors and in loving your neighbor. There is hope because they're still alive. There is always hope in this life. That God, through His work, and it is God's work, might work faith and repentance in the hearts of the wayward. May God be pleased to draw draw back those covenant members who are walking without the true shepherd as their guide. Also, congregation, this great victory on Mount Carmel By the true fertility God pictures the great victory over evil, over death, over Satan, and all idolatry. And that was accomplished in Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Elijah defeated the 450 prophets of Baal. But we know even more that God, through Jesus Christ, is the ultimate victor. He's the ultimate king. We sing, Jesus shall reign. How so? Because he won. He won. He defeated the enemy. Satan and death and sin has no power over us. Continues to be our enemy, our defeated enemy. We thank God that Jesus Christ is the ultimate victor and that victory of Jesus Christ is ours through faith. I asked you a moment ago, where you will be on the day of judgment. Entrance into eternal life. Entrance into eternal life doesn't involve meeting a list of 35 things that you have to do to be saved. Rather, entrance into eternal life involves doing exactly what the Israelites did in verse 39. They bowed their head down to the ground and they worshipped God And they said, the Lord, he is God. Brothers and sisters, may we confess today that the Lord, he is my God. He is our God. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org